0: It's Steven Henderson, and today on the podcast, we're going to talk about energy and energy regulation here in Michigan. We're going to start with Dan Scripps, who is the chair of the Michigan Public Service Commission, which oversees companies like DTE and Consumers Energy, recently made two really important decisions about energy, one, a rate hike for DTE, the other, a permit for Embridge Oil, which operates the Line 5 line under the Straits of Mackinac. We're going to hear how they make those decisions, how they balance the interests of corporations against the interests of citizens and the environment. And then we're going to have a broader conversation about utility regulation with Rachel Gold of the Rocky Mountain Institute. Lots of interesting info and conversation in this show coming up right now. So to kick us off, starting uh, to talk about all of these things, DTE, Line 5, and energy regulation, uh, we've got the chair of the Michigan Public Service Commission here, Dan Scripps. Dan, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Thanks, Stephen. It's always good to be with you.
0: Yeah. So before we get into the decisions that were made Friday, I want to start out by asking you just a little about your job. Tell us from your perspective what the MPSC does and how many different stakeholders you have to keep in mind when uh, you're thinking about these issues.
1: Yeah, as, as you said in the intro, with the Public Service Commission exists in Michigan. Um, we're actually celebrating our 150th year. Uh, we were established um, back in 1873 uh, as the Michigan Railroad Commission. And we've gone through a couple different iterations, um, but have been essentially in our, our current format since 1939. And our job is really, you know, when you think about um, particularly the, the service provided by electric and gas utilities, it's a pretty unique thing they're providing a vital public service, but we've granted them essentially a monopoly service territory in order to do that. And there's an inherent danger with monopolies, and so in each in each state there is a public service commission that is designed to to regulate these these monopoly utilities, um, understanding that there are some of these natural monopolies in in the provision of of energy, uh, in electricity and gas, but that there are to sort of address those those concerns. And so that's what's we call the regulatory compact. And the the idea is that regulatory oversight checks some of the monopoly instincts of the utilities and ensures that they continue to do what they need to do in providing these essential electric and gas services to to the people and businesses of Michigan.
0: Mm -hmm. So you used the word first, monopoly. Uh, And there's a lot of people who use that word quite pejoratively when they describe behavior. Uh, that they see from DTE or consumers or some of these other uh, energy companies. Um, I, I want to talk just a little about what in your mind that word means, what danger you think uh, that dynamic poses uh, in, the, in the energy environment here, and how you do try to regulate and hold accountable a monopoly. I think most of us uh, who've studied economics in any way or thought about it are taught that uh, these are bad these are bad ideas that uh, this can't work for uh, consumers uh, why is it okay in this context
1: yeah so I think the the idea goes back to the the provision of of electric service in particular and, and gas as well but that within a particular service territory um it it didn't make sense to have Six different companies running lines down the street, or or digging up the the streets to put to put gas lines underneath, and so granting an exclusive service territory to the to the electric company or the gas company, um, they were the only ones that could serve their customers in that area, at, at least on the distribution side. Um, and then, but in in exchange, that they had to submit to regulation from the state, um, where we look at the rates that they charge. Uh, the tariff provisions and how they provide their their electricity or their gas and a range of other things and and they can't increase rates without coming to us and having a, a fully contested case with with interveners and other interested parties who are participating directly in the case providing record evidence and at the end of it we have to issue an order that that sort of um, allows for them to recover their costs, plus the opportunity to earn a profit, but also can disallow costs that aren't substantially or sufficiently justified on the record that we don't think uh, will actually be incurred and, and the like. And so it's trying to get that balance of allowing them to do the work that we need. And in, in terms of, I mean, we all rely on, on electricity and most of us on natural gas as well, um, but but also sort of checking the the sort of worst impulses of, you know we've seen across the economy for you know the last hundred plus years the dangers of monopoly i think the realization here is that at least on the distribution side there are these natural monopolies that exist or have existed over the last hundred plus years but we've got to have that regulatory check to, to make sure that the the interests of customers and consumers aren't left out sort of given the the status that these these energy companies play
0: yeah yeah okay so let's get to what happened on Friday. And we can start with the DTE rate hike. The commission granted DTE a rate hike of 6.4%. And before we talk about what you decided Friday, we should note, you don't always indulge what DTE asks for. Last year, DTE wanted a rate hike of 8.8% for households and the commission only allowed a rate hike of less than one percent so talk about how you made that decision last time and why this time you decided to give the energy company a 6.4 percent increase
1: yeah so really the biggest issue a year ago was um over a, a dispute on on load forecasts um COVID has made things weird and you've seen a lot more people working from home uh residential energy uh, consumption going up over that time and there's some, you know, but we've also seen a number of people returning to the office at least part time and questions over what impact that would have on the actual consumption. And the way that rates are set is that we look at the the amount of, of money that's that's being requested and then you simply divide it by the number of, of kilowatt hours that are being sold. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the basic idea. Uh, and when you have a dispute over the number of kilowatt hours that are going to be sold, that can have a pretty significant impact on on the actual rate increase. And ultimately we sided with the the attorney general's position in, in that case, um, believing that the, that we hadn't returned to sort of a full normal and a decrease in residential energy consumption, and that the number of, of units of electricity that were going to be sold were gonna be higher. And and it was based on that that we we did the sort of math and, and came up, but that was more than a hundred million dollars of the dispute in that case and we ultimately found that the record evidence and the testimony provided by the attorney general supported that result Uh, in this case there was no dispute over the the number of hours we've sort of gotten past covid we've gotten to a, a new normal and the the load projections among the parties were essentially the same um and and there was broad agreement on that And so uh, we looked at a number of other things. We disallowed costs that we thought were avoidable, particularly with the Monroe Coal Plant, uh, believing that a a significant amount of the costs that were projected to be uh, spent for for Monroe actually could be avoided, Um, or other costs, including a, a significant amount of IT expenditures weren't sufficiently justified to allow recovery um so we we disallowed about 40 percent of what the company had asked for uh, but ultimately um, found that they had done a better job in justifying uh, a number of other expenses particularly tied to the capital investments in the distribution system Mm -hmm. that are needed for reliability and as you pointed out we've got big problems with reliability in this state and we we wanted to make sure that that those investments could be funded and that there would be a way of, of sort of tying the the dollars that were were being spent um, to to projects that we had a pretty solid belief would would lead to be- lead to better results for customers. I mean, that's a- so it was a larger increase, but when you look at the two together, it's basically rate of inflation over the last two years, um, which is not you know we found that after we made the decisions. It's not how we do our decisions, but when you sort of zoom out and look. These are essentially taken together, a, a smaller increase and a larger increase, but essentially rate of inflation over the last two cases.
0: So that's a kind of tricky position to be in, right? So uh, DTE comes to you, says our costs are going up like everybody else's, and in order to improve our performance, which is actually pretty bad, uh, we need more money to do that. Uh, and so then you're in the position of, I guess, determining whether – if you grant that increase, they will actually improve their performance. And if we look over the last few years, I think it'd be really hard to argue that DTE's performance has gotten better. It, it may have in, in some uh, statistical analysis. I, don't, I, I, I actually don't know the answer to that question. But I think from a consumer uh, perspective, it's absolutely gotten worse. Uh, the wind blows around here, and the power goes out, uh, and it stays out much longer now than it used to. So, so I guess from the pers- for, from the perspective of 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 the commission, how do you balance those two things? How do you make sure that yeah they have money to make things better, but that they actually deliver on the promises that they make and don't just pocket the money. I mean, when you look at the profits that DTE makes, when you look at executive pay at DTE, it's really hard to justify more money for them, given what we're getting out of. them.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree with that. Um, And so we've tried to do a number of things in the last couple of years to, to, well, two things, more than two, but I'll focus on two. One is ring fencing the dollars that are supposed to be spent on reliability, so that they go to those purposes. And the other is to bet try and better tie their financial performance to the the experience that their customers have, including some downside penalties, um, where where the performance isn't meeting standards, and, and I think we can all agree it's not. So the on the ring fencing, this started in 2019, where we authorized them to do a a surge in tree trimming or vegetation management, as we call it, Um, really trying to get the trees off the lines, knowing that trees are the number one cause of outages. Mm -hmm. And we said that they could they could recover that money, but they could only use it for that purpose. And so they've they've moved forward. And in the places where we've seen the tree trimming happen, we've seen improvements in reliability. But I'm still not sure that we're keeping up with with the weather that's getting worse. I mean, you see more extreme weather on a more regular basis and the severity of the storms, ice storms, tornadoes just in the last year is getting worse. And so that I think we're sort of we're running up a hill at this point. The other thing. But in this last case, we also said for base distribution investments, you can spend the dollars that you asked for, but you can only spend it on that. And, and if you spend less than the amount authorized in rates, or you spend it on a different purpose, you have to give that money back to customers, Mm -hmm. you can't just move it to, and we've seen this, it's, it's not that the other programs that they're using it for aren't reasonable, things like storm response costs or other things, but it's not improving the reliability in the way that it was targeted when when it was requested. So putting putting that in a box and saying, you can only spend it for this purpose. If you spend less than what you said, or you spend it for another purpose, you've got to give it back to customers is another way to make sure those dollars are actually getting to reliability. And then on the the performance side, we really sort of have taken stock of what are the things that, that are most in need of improvement. And, you know, there's a number of ways to measure this, but the two that really stand out in my mind are the amount of time it takes to restore, Uh, particularly in storms. We've had multiple events this year where people have been out for a week or more and there's just no way that's acceptable. So highlighting the the amount of time it takes to restore. And then also the, the thing that drives people crazy is, you know, it's one thing if the power goes out once or twice in a major event, um as long as it comes back on but but if it's your seventh eighth tenth time of losing power in a year people get really frustrated Mm -hmm. and and i i totally get that and so Mm -hmm. identifying the places where people are, are repeatedly losing power and focusing on the circuits that need it most so those are some of the metrics where we're going to tie performance of the utility to, to actually how they make their money, including an upside. If they can, if they can get better faster and deliver the results that people expect, but some downside penalties, if they continue to sort of lag the rest of their peers um, and, and deliver performance that's, that I think everybody agrees is unacceptable.
2: Mm.
0: So, so I also, of course, want to talk about line five uh, and the decision to, Grant this key permit uh, to allow Enbridge to to start trying to build this tunnel uh, to to better protect Line Five. Of course, there are a lot of people who believe that the the line is just inherently dangerous, and that we're they we're you know playing Russian roulette with it, uh, waiting for something catastrophic to happen that we would never be able to clean up or or reverse. So walk me through the the decision here uh to to grant this permit
1: yeah I, I totally agree with that people describe this line on the the straits as a ticking time bomb and i think they're exactly right um but the so the question is what, what are we going to do about it and we know that 75 percent of the risk uh of of a, a catastrophic spill and it would absolutely be catastrophic is from anchor strikes we know there was an anchor strike just in 2018 that actually dented one of the lines and so you know, as we looked at the alternatives, we don't we didn't get a say in whether or not the tunnel gets built. our Our task was whether the current lines, the four miles that run in these two pipelines that are exposed um, under this that lie on the bottomlands of the Straits of Mackinac, should be relocated inside that tunnel. And when we looked at the alternatives that that were available, when we looked at the safety record, including reopening the evidentiary record to get more evidence and and instituting some conditions on the line to further reduce the safety risk, we found that there was that this was the the best place to, to put them. That we can't continue to have these lines operate on the the bottomlands, and the opportunity to put them in a tunnel virtually eliminates the risk of an anchor strike, um, and and is a much safer option and more protective of the Great Lakes than what exists today.
0: Yeah, um, when you say that uh, it's not your job to determine what happens with this line, I think that's an an important point. Um, uh, Do you wanna expand on that and how uh, the MPSC has to work with the people who are are making these decisions and ultimately, I mean, it is the governor uh, and and to some extent, the legislature, I suppose, that that could make these decisions about what happens with that line.
1: I I think this is one of the most frustrating things to, to folks is who exactly has what responsibility in this process and the in in 2018 the legislature created this Mackinac uh, Straits Corridor Authority and they actually have that's housed in the state department of transportation but they actually have authority over the tunnel itself eagle our department of environment great lakes and energy has permit responsibilities for for some of the things around um, wetlands where where the ultimately the tunnel will come up and then our responsibility at the commission was the the actual line itself where the we we regulate energy We're, we're not sort of tunnel constructors or anything like that and so our ours was should you take the lines that currently exist on the bottomlands and put them inside the tunnel and that included obviously looking at the safety of the tunnel and trying to determine risks but the actual question of building a tunnel wasn't for us that's the straits corridor authority and then at the federal level you've got couple of overlaying layers as well. So it's, we don't have the ability to to shut down the line as it is. I know that the Attorney General and the governor have have pursued that um, through legal strategies, and those cases are, are pending. Um, ours was looking at uh, under our under Act 16, which is from 1929, is there a, a need for the line and a need to relocate it inside the tunnel? Um, is the, the route, including putting it inside the tunnel reasonable? Does it meet or exceed safety and engineering standards? That's where we put on some of the conditions. And then is it consistent with the Michigan Environmental Protection Act, including um, for the first time looking at greenhouse gas emissions associated both with the project and the continued operation of the line. Hmm. And when we went through those factors, we ultimately found that that there was a need to put it inside the tunnel, uh, that, that it the, the, the route was reasonable, that it with the conditions that we added it, we, we found that it was the, a safer and, and better engineered option and, and ultimately that it passed the MEPA analysis as well.
0: We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Uh, Dan, I do want to get immediately to our listeners here. We got a lot of folks queued up with with pretty good questions, I think. Um, and a start on social, uh, where a, a listener asks why DTE is being granted a rate hike when they just changed the rate structure, which is something that did happen. Homes are billed at a higher rate from 3 to 7 p.m., which is peak family time, right uh, when more people are in the home using energy. Uh, this listener says that was essentially a rate hike, and he he or she says it was price gouging as well. D- do you consider things like that when you look at the number you were talking about, uh, giving them a hike that would represent the rate of inflation over the last two years? But they did change the rate structure uh, to get more money. Uh, was that was that part of your your analysis?
1: Yeah, it, it's a great question. Um, it. That shift was actually designed to to better reflect the ultimate, the underlying pricing of electricity. We, we think of every kilowatt hour that we use as, as costing the same, but the reality is there are significant differences in the price that that ultimately is, it is paid either to generate or to buy that um, from the wholesale markets. And to try and better connect that up with the, the prices being paid by customers was the goal there. So it actually doesn't raise any more money for DTE. Um, And for a lot of folks, they can actually save money if they're able and willing to shift their consumption from those places where energy is more expensive to places where it's less so. And just to give you one example, we actually rolled this out in the consumer's territory as a pilot and they did it in a number of communities. And one of them is where my in-laws live. And if you go visit my in-laws right above the washing machine was the the time schedule and they never do uh, <laughs> their laundry before three or or, or um, between three and seven. It's always before three or after seven. Same thing with dishwashing and, and the like. And and for folks who are are budget conscious and and can shift their energy, um, there's an opportunity to save money. So it actually doesn't bring in more money for DTE or for consumers. Uh, it changes how it's collected and, and to better reflect the, the underlying costs. Um, but again, it provides an opportunity for folks who, who are, are budget conscious, and we've, we've seen this a number of times, to actually save money on their utility bills simply by shifting when they're using. So
0: the energy. I guess I, I want to be clear about what you're saying. I mean, I get that if people shift their habits, their, their bills would go down. But if they don't shift their habits, they would pay more than they're paying. Are you saying that so far you haven't seen an increase in revenue to – the power companies by doing this which would suggest that people are shifting habits or are you saying that overall this wouldn't give them more money which actually i guess doesn't make sense to me
1: yeah so no it does it when it was modeled with there were some assumptions that people would shift and we've actually seen that in the the numbers as as we've studied it now that it's been implemented at both a pilot um level and then more broadly okay um so, but there are also there's a, a there and this was an issue in the the most recent case. There's a low income rate. There was a proposal by DTE to simply shift um, to to these time of of use or time based um, prices. And we, we wanted to do an extra study on, on those low income populations in particular. And that was a request that came in from a number of Detroit area advocacy organizations in the case to say, can we can we tap the brakes on this? We just wanna make sure that this works for the folks who are, are struggling the most. And, and we agreed to do that. So there's gonna be an additional study in terms of how this impacts low income customers in particular, but more broadly, it's, it's designed to, to better reflect the costs on the system Provide opportunities for savings for for those who are willing to shift, and then for those who prioritize convenience and and simply want to sort of do the the laundry when they get home or, or whatever else that that they they better sort of they what they pay better reflects the actual cost
0: of yeah. the system. Yeah, I mean I I, I get it. Uh, I, I I would say that a, a family, I think a big family, a working family might have a harder time uh, shifting. Those those activities, but but I get I get the at least the theory behind what you're saying, and you're saying it's so far in practice uh, that's working. Okay, I want to get to the next question here. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says DTE and consumers influence the regulation authority, and in most instances, they are writing the rules that they're governed by, and those rules almost always solely benefit the corporation uh, can you speak to that uh, that that part of the environment dte and and consumers of course do spend a lot of money trying to influence the political process uh, is the commission simply uh, i guess an articulation of of that influence uh, because they are so heavily uh, funding uh, so many of our politicians here in, in michigan
1: You know, I think one of the interesting things that the legislature did when it created the commission, and this isn't just true in Michigan, but to try and provide a degree of uh, independence from the political process. So we're appointed for six year terms, which is longer than the term of the governor that appoints us, Um, the governor appoints us, but subject to the advice and consent of the Senate. So there's a, a check there as well. And then there's a a number of other things. Only two of us can be from the same political party. The terms overlap. So there's sort of a consistency to the commission, even if there's turnover in in the sort of um, politically, uh, the, the legislature and the governor. Um, and the fact that we can only be, you know, the chair serves at the pleasure of the, the governor. She could replace me tomorrow or today, um, but, and and replace me with one of the other two commissioners. But, but to be removed from the commission itself can only happen if, if we're truly not doing our job, not just because somebody disagrees with the decision. So that I think is an, an important degree of independence in allowing us to look at the record evidence in front of us sort of like a judge does um, and apply it to the, the laws that have been written by the legislature and, and try and come up with the right result.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's start today with Nicole in East Lansing. Nicole, welcome to the show. Can you hear me? I sure can. Okay.
3: Okay. So um, my children and I are uh, tribal members of the Little Traverse Bay Band, and um, my son, Moses, has been making comment for a couple of years. In fact, he used to get handshakes from the commissioners. And um, there's a difference this past Friday. The commission voted first, whereas before they'd hear public comment afterwards. Mm. There's a very limited comment time. So how is this public expected to trust this regulatory body when valid public input Um, such as engineering experts saying this tunnel's faulty, young children saying this scares me as the climate future has no discernible power to sort of overcome what the interests of the energy
2: companies are.
0: Nicole, that's a that's a great question. Dan, why was the structure of this meeting different from the others? And how can people trust that their comments have any influence if the decision gets made up front?
1: Yeah, no, it, it, it wasn't different. We, we always sort of do the business and then there's a public comment period at the end. Mm. And so we, we did this the same way that we have. But I, I will say that the public comments, we received 23,000 public comments, uh, including from Nicole and her children. And um, it's, it's something that we we've certainly considered in, as well as the engineering evidence on the record. Um, I, as I said, last year, we actually reopened the record um on this case to to sort of dive further into some of the engineering risks that had been presented and ultimately we found that um they could be addressed by some of the conditions including making sure that there aren't third-party utilities that could bring an additional ignition risk into the the tunnel um going above the minimum standards for some of the the, the welding standards that are that are in place and then also to the extent practicable requiring a higher level of, of sort of electric code conduct or um, electric code compliance uh, to, again, further reduce the risk. So it's something that based on what we heard from, from the parties, we actually wanted to, to make sure that there, there was support. And at the end of the day, we found that, that there was, but with some important conditions that, that we applied as part of the decision.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And now, uh, so here's here's another question I have about this. You say that that this is the way the meeting is always structured that there's decisions and then there's public comment at the end. Um, when when that's true, uh, I, I think there's a real question to ask about engagement and how engagement works. Uh, uh, yes, you have to take public comments because it's a public meeting. But but is there a way, I guess, to, to make that more a part of the deliberations to make people feel like they can be heard better?
1: Yeah, I I, I hear that. But I also, this has been a long process. And over the course of, of the process, we held a, a dedicated public meeting um, that was during COVID. So it was, it was virtual. Um, all of our, our um, meetings are open. And so over the course of the the time that this has been pending, we've we've heard a, a number of times from folks who have come to our meetings to express their comments on, on Line 5. We built a dedicated website um, to to the case um, just to increase sort of transparency and visibility around around the case. That's um, michigan.gov slash MPSC Line 5. And there was an opportunity to submit comments there as well as through the docket itself. And as I said, we received 23,000 or so Public comments—a um, combination of those made as part of the the dedicated um, public meeting on this, at our uh, regular commission meetings, and then those uh, written comments that we received through those different forums—and so I, I, I struggle to to sort of agree with the idea that this was made without uh, allowing the public to sort of participate or to to have their say. And I, I think the fact that there were twenty three thousand comments. Now you know a lot of those disagree with the decision that we made. Sure, but but I think that they were considered um, alongside the the evidentiary record on which we have to base our decisions. And ultimately, as we applied the the statutory tests and and consistent with the precedent based on that evidentiary record, I I think that's how we reached the decision.
0: Yeah, yeah, Uh, Nicole, really appreciate the call and the, the 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 great question. Let's go next to Dr. Lawrence in Ann Arbor. Dr. Lawrence, welcome to the show.
2: Uh, This is Dr. Lauren Sargent. There's so much here that I can't even begin to start. For one thing, uh, you absolutely can take climate impact into consideration in your deliberations. And this greenlights Enbridge to keep milking money out of fossil fuels and leaving us with a stranded asset. You've already said this is a ticking time bomb, which it is. We need to be electrifying everything and powering it with renewables. And efficiency, and there are ways to get the limited amount of propane that people in the UP get from Line 5 by other means. You know all of that. What has also not been taken into the evidentiary record is that there is a fault line on the floor underneath Line 5. Mm-hmm. There is a huge earthquake risk. Also, there are um, indigenous burial grounds and sacred sites on the floor those have just been identified by citizen science in a submarine and those have not been i have been uh, uh explored and also the governor has already enjoined the easement this is like saying well i'm trespassing in your house and squatting here and i'm applying for a building permit to put on a sunroom and having that go through this is absolutely crazy and also the storms that you reference are a consequence of the climate crisis that we are already experiencing. So,
0: Dr. Lawrence, before before I get back to Dan, I want to have a question. What would, you, what would you do? Would you have... I mean, the P- Public Service Commission can't decommission the line. So you're, what you're saying is that you'd like to see the governor do that. Is that right?
2: Well, the governor should do that, but also the commission should say, heck no to the t- tunnel. Okay. There is no project like this anywhere in the world that is completely unproven. And Dr. Lawrence,
0: I want to get back to Dan to have her, have him answer this great question. Dan, go ahead.
1: Yeah, there, she made a, a lot of points and I appreciate Dr. Sargent um the for for calling in. I think the ultimately the the concern that we have is is doing nothing and denying it i i realize that the governor has has enjoined the the line but but the line continues to operate it continues to to pump its full capacity today and that litigation is ongoing and so i think the question is do we sort of hope that that gets resolved in a way that the the governor is successful at at ultimately shutting down the the line in the straits or do we look at an option that virtually eliminates the, the risks that we've seen, and, and not theoretical risks, but the, the risks of anchor strikes that we've seen, where we were fortunate to survive it last time, but may not be so fortunate in the future. And in, in my view, and I, I realize not everybody agrees with me on this, but in my view, and supported by the evidence on the record, I, I think this moves us to, to a much safer uh, standpoint and is, and is an important step in finally getting those lines off the bottomlands of the, of the Great Lakes.
0: Okay. Uh, Dan Scripps, uh, really appreciate the time you've given us today to talk with our listeners uh, about both Line 5 and the DTE rate hike. I'm going to make you promise before we get you off the line that you will come back uh, and talk with us again. Talk with our listeners. No, absolutely. I mean,
1: it's. I think it's really important. Um important that you know we we do this based on evidentiary records but it's also really important that we we don't forget that it is the the public that we serve in the public service commission so i appreciate the opportunity
0: okay uh, we're gonna take a quick break we'll be right back with more detroit today This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Steven Henderson. Now we want to turn to the larger context of utility regulation and commissions. How do we get public utility commissions in this country in the first place? What's their role and how has it changed over time? And are there better ways to improve oversight? of these companies. To talk about all of this, we have Rachel Gold here. She is a principal with the Carbon-Free Electricity Practice at the Rocky Mountain Institute and is an expert on utilities and the regulators. Rachel, welcome to Detroit Today.
3: Uh, Thanks, Stephen. It's good to be with you.
0: So let's talk about these commissions and where they come from and how they differ from state to state.
3: Great. Um, Well, first of all, I'll thank you for having us join and share a little bit about why we pay attention to commissions. So RMI is an an independent nonprofit organization of experts accelerating the clean energy transition. And you might ask, why are we paying attention to these in some ways obscure agencies? And the reason is um, when you think about the decisions that are made that impact the energy transition, particularly in the United States, These 50 or 51 state commissions are groups of three to seven individuals who have outsized impact on the billions and perhaps as much as trillion dollar investment that we are already making in the energy system and need to make in the energy system going forward. Um, So that's why we pay attention to them. And their history, as Chair Scripps mentioned earlier, really comes from this idea that They're a set of services that society gets, electricity, water, natural gas, originally railroads and green silos in parts of the country um, that have public benefits and that uh, have characteristics of monopolies such that uh, it makes sense to regulate them. Otherwise, we risk seeing some of those negative characteristics of monopolies, particularly around high prices.
0: Hmm. So let's get to it. Does this work? Is this the right way to be regulating energy companies? I don't know if you heard a lot of the last conversation that we had with our chair here in Michigan and and the response of our listeners to that, but there's just an awful lot of frustration with these commissions and with the decisions that they make, which people, I think, feel are too deferential, I guess, to corporate interests.
3: A great question. And uh, this is, as the chair mentioned, there's a 150-year history in Michigan, 100 years in some states of this kind of regulation. So the answer to the question, does this work, is sometimes, and it depends. Um, and the ways in which it does work is that many of these uh, commissions are set up as independent entities that have both judicial responsibilities. They rule on investments or rates that the utility proposes, and they have some insulation from the political pressures of the day, and they can use their expertise. Um, And the ways in which they sometimes don't work is that we see uh, there are some commissions that have um, folks that um, uh, exhibit what's called regulatory capture, right, where the regulators are making decisions that, as you say, could be too deferential to one or more interests That might be the utility. It might be other interests that come before them.
2: Hmm.
0: Uh, How do we make sure that this influence that energy companies want to wield over the political process doesn't seep into this this decision-making that these commissions make? Uh, There was a question from a listener about that. There are all kinds of people in the state who talk all the time about the outsized influence of these companies, which, of course, are quite wealthy uh, over the political process. How how would you ever keep that separate from the regulation of the companies themselves?
3: Yeah, we see there's sort of three ways to do that, and they all start with P, which is fun, uh, (laughs) sort of like Sesame Street. Purpose, people, and process. Hmm. And what, what we mean by that is, uh, it's really important that commissions have a clear, clearly articulated mandate and purpose and that they hold utilities to performance that matches that. So uh, per, uh, public utility commissions are a delegation of authority from the legislature. And so it's it's important that the legislature pay attention to what's happening at the PUC and make sure that their decisions are resulting in the kind of performance we want to see. And also that the commission itself is setting clear performance standards uh, in Michigan, for example, there's been some work to set performance standards around reliability and to have both incentives and potential penalties if the company doesn't meet those standards. And you can envision performance for affordability, for things like greenhouse gas reduction, safety, et cetera. Um, so that's the the first P is purpose. The second is people Um, If we want to get good decisions out of commissions, we need to make sure that these are staffed with the best experts who are well-paid and have great career paths so that when they're going up against and reviewing the evidence from utilities, they have the same level of expertise and the same level of support to be able to do that. Um, And then lastly, process matters. You talked earlier in the session about some of the concerns that, that folks have around process and Transparency is really important, making sure that the commission is building a record um, and then acting on that record, and that folks really have fair opportunities to participate in, in the process. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. I'm going to go to Pavan in Rochester Hills. Pavan, welcome to the show.
4: Hi, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Um Actually had prepared remarks for mr scripps it's uh, unfortunate that he had to leave so soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to point out that uh and push back on something mr. Scripps said uh the uh, antiquated investor owned utility model is not a a thing that we have to have uh and it's not something that uh is essential to delivering uh power in In fact, it is uh a barrier to delivering affordable power. Um, I wanted to ask Mr. Scripps uh, about the uh, record profits that DTE had posted and mm-hmm. and to see why uh, DTE should be rewarded with a rate increase um, while they already have record profits and are refusing to invest those profits in Black, Brown, Indigenous, low-income communities mm-hmm. that have borne the brunt of, of these really unaffordably high rates and unacceptably uh, poor service. We're talking about four major outages that happened this year, sure. sometimes two weeks long, yeah. and thousands of dollars that, that this is going to end up costing communities that are already in a, a very poor position to be able to afford this this cost. Yeah. So, um,
0: Pavan, I mean, uh, uh, for starters, I, I think you're mischaracterizing just a little what uh, Dan Scripps was saying. I mean, he wasn't saying this was an essential to delivering affordable power. He said, this is the system that we have, and the commission is charged with regulating it. I think it is a good question about why we continue to give them rate increases uh, when they don't seem to be ke- keeping up with uh, you know investing in the infrastructure making sure that service delivery uh, doesn't get interrupted he 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 did answer that question when i asked it by saying that uh, this this new money that they're getting is going to be fenced off and has to be invested in um, you know, in, in uh, improving the grid and, and uh, response times and, and, and things like that. I, I, I just always want to caution that, that the commission itself doesn't have a lot of power to change things. It's operating within a system that we have allowed uh, the state to set up. Uh, our frustration is probably a little better directed at the governor's office or at the attorney general or at the legislature. But but they're, they're great questions. And I do want our current guest, Rachel Gold, to talk about this monopoly approach and whether that is the best or only way uh, to do these things. Are, are there other states doing different things?
3: Great question. And just to quickly respond to Pavan, I will say that there's um, there are some options that are newly a part of the recent legislation passed in Michigan Mm -hmm. that require the commission to do a better job of of sort of taking environmental justice considerations into its assessment of utility investments. And so I think that creates an opportunity for for additional consideration of of those issues. Um, What it does though, is it stops short of actually mandating an equitable distribution of benefits and burdens And I will flag that there are some states, for example, New York, in their Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act actually requires that a certain percentage of the benefits from climate action and investments in climate really result in what they call disadvantaged communities in their state. So that may be one opportunity or option to build on the recent legislation in Michigan. Mm. Um, To the question of whether there are other models, there are two other big models uh, in the United States. One is called... Um, municipal uh, utilities, the other cooperative power, municipal utilities are run by either uh, uh, territories in the case of, uh, of of some parts of the country or cities and co-ops, cooperative utilities are member owned and they typically serve rural parts of, uh, of the United States. So there are a couple of other models and there are some real trade-offs between those models and the, um, the investor-owned model that uh, that, for example, DTE represents. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, uh, Rachel Gold. It was uh, really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today to talk about this. And of course, this was a wonderful uh, bevy of uh, listener participation today. Lots of lots of phone calls and uh, social. I want to thank our listeners for that. Rachel, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me, Stephen.
0: Yeah. Today's episode of Detroit Today was produced by Sam Corey and Mick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Nate Bender. Our assistant producer is Manny Boyer. Editing and mixing is by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Our podcast manager is David Lyons, and our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET Public Radio. If you love the conversations we have on Detroit Today, consider donating to WDET, the public radio station in Detroit that we call home. If you want to be a part of the conversation and call in, you can listen live every day on WDET.org or on the WDET mobile app. Or if you live in southeast Michigan and still love listening to good old-fashioned radio like me, tune in to 1019FN.